Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California from the studios of Sirius XM West boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign this is the Tully show I am your host Mike Tully joining me today a household name at least in every household I care to visit for his breakthrough portrayal of Johnny Rico in the 1997 classic Starship Troopers and the star of the new horror film Darkness Reigns premiering on VOD July 10th. Hello and welcome Casper Van Dien. Hi, thank you. Hi. Uh, you and I have uh, communicated on Twitter once or twice. It's nice yes. to um, meet you not virtually. Ah, nice to meet you too. <laughs> you and I are from the uh, same basic neck of the woods. You're from Ridgewood, New Jersey, right? I am, I am. Yeah, I'm from Rutherford a little bit further down. No way. My dad was 17. a teach my dad was a teacher at East Rutherford High. No in, kidding. In Beckton Regional High School. Beckton. Yeah. Yeah, that was the school my parents wanted me to go to. Oh, it was. <laughs> you you could have joined his NROTC unit. You know. what, what's that? NJROTC, it's the Navy uh you know. The cadets, the prepping for uh, military service or college, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's ROTC. It's the, uh, you know, it's just got kids in uniforms wearing yeah. military uniforms. He's Navy. I see. Oh, so yeah, ROTC, but for yeah. Navy. For, yeah, NJOTC. You were, yeah, your dad's military guy? Navy, 20 years. And then I went to Admiral Farragut Academy, which was uh, an all-guy military school. Not the one in Jersey, because it closed down, but I went to the one in Florida. Later at my junior and senior year. So how did that work out that you you didn't you ended up in Hollywood? Uh, well, uh, well, we didn't have acting at the school because it was an all guy school, and I probably would have been the guy they would have chose to play Juliet at that time, and uh, <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't have been up for it. But now I'd probably take it as a challenge, but uh, I probably still wouldn't play it. Yeah, there's uh, downfalls to being the prettiest guy in high school, huh? Yeah, you know they they called me Kendall, you, not not something you always want to be. When I was on the USS Forrestal going from which is an aircraft carrier, Navy aircraft carrier, going from my uh, junior year into my senior year, um, they gave us flight uh, shirts that we had to wear on deck and we had like F-18s landing behind us and you get your, your first name on, on the front and your back uh, your nickname on the back and you know people were like doing Maverick because of Top mm -hmm. Gun and all that and I went and hit the head which is the bathroom and I came back and they had put Ken Doll on the back of it so with 1700 men on a ship I was Ken Doll which was not what you want to be they were just jealous I hope you know that now well you know I get paid for it now so it's, it's alright <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that now um, so well, let's talk about uh, Darkness Reigns. Um, you've not done a ton of horror before. I've done a, a little bit. Uh, yeah. I did Sleepy Hollow with Tim Burton and yeah. Johnny Depp and Christine Ricci and uh, Christopher Walken. They had a lot of cool people in it. Um, and then I did one called The Pact that came out in Sundance, and it, it did pretty well. Um, fan of the genre in general? I am a huge fan of it. Uh, What's and, your stuff? Well, I, I mean, I, I loved, uh, you know, I love I love Kubrick, so I like a lot of, you know, uh, and, and Jack Nicholson was a amazing in The Shining. So, you know, I have, I, I, I like a lot of different ones. I like a lot of different horror movies i like um you know uh, i like carrie i liked um the exorcist uh so you're more of like a psychological guy than necessarily just scream fest the scariest monster the most guts 
Well, you know, I also like that. I mean, I'm I, my my wife says I'll watch anything. She mm. goes, you just watch everything and anything. I only sleep about four hours, so I've always just I just get up and I watch I watch those movies at night that that nobody else watches because they're just on on yeah. <laughs> and I mean, now we have like five hundred billion stations, but back in the day, I still was doing this, and, and you know, it'd just be like whatever horror movie came on, and I loved Bella Lugosi, and I loved all the you know. You know, but I even like Abbott and Costello. Me, you know, you know all those. So I, I love all. I love all movies. I'm pretty terrible. I love some ones that are just so horrible, and I just watch them because it's just fun. What's your favorite bad movie? I love. I, I almost like bad things better than good things at this uh, point. You know, I don't know if I have a favorite bad movie. <laughs> I, I have favorite great movies. I yeah. mean, I love. Uh, uh, True Romance is my one of my favorite all time movies, I, but I also love West Side Story. So I go, you know, I I, I go across, and I love all the Star Wars and all the Star Trek. I'm I'm just a you know huge fan of of films, uh, but I love John Ford films the most probably. So wow, I, okay, I, love, I wasn't I, expecting that answer. I love westerns, so that's that's the main thing that I probably I, I watch westerns all the time, and I'll rewatch them all the time. I think I've watched The Searchers for the first time recently. It's and- amazing. It's it's just so um, it's so completely transcendent because you took this thing, the American West. It's like it's this own genre that America has, and there's different rules because you know there's horror, and everybody knows what that is. It's scary. There's comedy. It's funny. There's romance. People fall in love. What's a western? It's just this whole other world. And at this point, we've been making movies about the West way longer than there actually was, like, the West as we know it. That period's only 30, 40 years, but you can tell a million stories about it. Well, what's amazing about it, too, is is our industry, Hollywood, almost went uh, belly up during the Depression. And the only thing that kept it alive was the dime, nickel and dime store theaters uh, where they where, – uh, nickel and dime theaters where they, where they did Westerns, and they could – pump them out real quick and do so many of them and people were still they were going through so much but they could you know if they could save up even a nickel or a dime and go to these it's what kept it kept hollywood alive it almost went you know completely belly up but that's so i think it's an interesting thing because it saved our industry and yeah and i gather that you you like you're a hollywood aficionado you're not just a, an actor and isn't it cool when you're not from here and no. neither am i like you know gower gulch do you know there's a strip mall up yeah. on, on Sunset? The reason why it's Gower Gulch is because it's down the hill from the hills where they used to film a whole lot of the cheap ones. And that was where the extras would collect every single morning. And they would walk down the hill to Gower Gulch and go, okay, you look like a guy who has been prospecting unsuccessfully for a little while. Come back up the hill with us. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, they're still there. Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. still there. I see a lot of those people. Yeah, they wouldn't just described. In, wouldn't be cast in westerns anymore, but similarly, oh, uh, some of them hard, would. On, hard on their luck. <laughs> some, of, some of them would, though. I mean, but they just have to dress them a little different. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Probably the same amount of teeth. Um, <laughs> so uh, you play yourself in Darkness Reigns. Yes, I do. Um, I play uh, a really horrible version of myself. Okay. Um, uh, you know, and some people might go, "How did your wife ever marry you?" And my ex-wives are probably like, that's exactly who he is. See, I told you. So there you go. Um, so, you know, there's that argument that goes on. But I, you know, when the director wrote this with me in mind, he wrote, you know, I think he had two different actors in mind. And he had like me and one other actor. I don't know who it was. But um, he's like, oh, I'm just so glad you're going to play this. And I'm like, I'm a real not a nice guy. And he's like, it's going to be great. 
And uh, so far, it seems like uh, he's like, he called me up yesterday. He goes, you know, I got 11 great reviews and one okay one and one not so good one. And he goes, but they're all great and they love you as this character. And I'm like, so people like me being not nice. And he's like... Yeah, I'm. I'm allowed to swear on this. Yes, go right oh, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Because he's like, yeah, you're a great dick, and I'm like, all right, um, thanks. I think that's <laughs> well. People don't want to see. That's funny because they want to see the real you, but not if the real you turns out to just be a normal, average, everyday guy. They yeah. want that when you open yourself up, they go, oh, he's there's something wrong with this guy. Yeah, but I think that's what we can relate to because when people are like all wholesome and perfect and, and they yeah. don't have any faults, then we're like. You're boring. I don't believe you. You're lying, and there's something not truthful. I can't relate. Mm-hmm. But people all have gone through things. I mean, I, I'm a father, mm-hmm. and you're a father, and, and we we uh, we try to transform and become better, especially when we have children, I think. Uh, it makes us want to step up more and become a better man, a better human being, and, and, and better for society because we want what's best for our children, not what's you know, not what the alternative. And uh, I think we keep stepping up. And so people find it more relatable to have people that have flaws, huge flaws are sometimes the most, you know, because if if somebody has um, more flaws than you, then then you're like, yeah, I like this person because I'm I'm better than that. (laughs) I'm not so bad. Look at him. Or or I've also gone through that and now I'm a better person. Um, And I think we we like that. And also sometimes we like to see the, uh, you know, people just look like schmucks. And I, I guess that's my, you know, my, my ex-wives don't like it, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, and your kids, I love the saying, uh, no man is a hero to his valet, which is like there's all these great men. But if you were actually in the room with the great men seeing how the sausage is made, nobody, nobody's a great man when it comes down to it. And it's funny what you say about the kid because 20 minutes ago, I'm, I'm running late, driving my kid to camp, trying to get back here. And I'm getting so angry in my car. I can't find his stupid summer camp. And every time I'm like... And I'm kind of like punching my leg a little bit. I'm like, he's watching me. The yeah. eye, the the walls have eyes now, and and the in all likelihood, I think for the most part, I'm a good example for my dude. But he's going to be like an angry dude who's punching himself in the car someday, and it's kind of on me. Yeah, it, it, these are the things we have to look at. I mean, <laughs> I, when I look at how when my son has tried to outdumb me, and he's 24 now, so and I keep sometimes I go, you really don't have to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I did a great. Example of you know really dumb things. You don't have to try to outdumb me. But then, <laughs> what sort of dumb stuff did you get up to? Oh, you know, I just uh, I I got in a lot of fights because I was a, a a pretty boy and I didn't want to be. And now it's so funny because I make my whole career off of something like that on camera or whatever. But uh, I did get in a lot of fights because it's not something I wanted to be. I didn't want to be the Ken doll. I wanted to probably be more macho or whatever it was, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't. You know, your nose came out of it straight. I, you know, it did. I broke it. <laughs> I broke it like three or four times. It must have. It must have been an even number. You I got it right no, back to. Normal. I have no septum in the middle. Uh-huh. They took it out because it was because it grew like this. Because I broke it when I was really little. Uh-huh. I, I fought my whole life. I grew up in Jersey fighting. I don't know why. In Ridgewood. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then See, that's where that's where I wanted to be. Yeah, a lot of people say that, but you know, um, <laughs> when you're the poor family in the rich town, oh uh, yeah, you know, my ta- my parents were teachers, and, and Ridgewood's, you know, oh. Ridgewood's like all wealth, yeah. and my dad's like the teacher, and so like. I remember one time he went out and got me a, a bicycle, um, and we found it from somebody that had thrown it out, and it had a bent frame, and we fixed it, and we rebent it together, and we only had bat- powder blue um, paint, and we painted it that, and all the kids made so much fun of me, and I, I wish I had had I was like ashamed of that bike, and I shouldn't have been. I should have been so proud because my dad made it, and part of me was I did have pride, but you know it was something that caused me to get in a fight, and I wish it hadn't. 
you know. Yeah, well, I should have just been like, hey, hey, whatever, dude. Well, but we you, did this. My dad and I built this. Yeah, well, you can see that as an adult now, but man, yeah, everything is really relative, and and yeah, I mean, we, we, everybody in Los Angeles is living that because it doesn't matter who you are. There's somebody at your kid's school or in, in that you rub shoulders with who just blows you away financially. Oh yeah, well, I mean, out in and when I was living in Malibu, which I'm no longer, um, but when I was living in Malibu, there was James Cameron's kids, there was <laughs> Mel Gibson's kids, you know, I was like, okay, Pierce Brosnan's kids, I was like, Cindy Crawford's kids, I was like, wow, yeah. all the, you know, all these people, you know, so my kids are all like, and I'm like, you know, some of the kids thought, hey, you're Johnny, R- you're Johnny Rico's your dad, you know, I'm like, that was cool. Yeah. But you see, that's a movie I want to see you play yourself in, where you're the middle class movie star. Yeah, <laughs> I think I've done that. <laughs> but I think I should play a whole movie like that. Yeah, I would. If Jean Claude Van Damme can do it, I don't see why uh, why you can't. Um, I want to ask you about Johnny Rico. I have a couple questions naturally. I, I I honestly believe that there has never been a movie that worked on all levels like Starship Troopers because you could be the dumbest person in the world who just wants to get wasted and eat popcorn and watch people fight bugs or you can appreciate it on this incredibly high level of oh my god this whole thing is not an inside joke but the subtext of this is like insane it is I the, the satire in America at first was missed for yeah, the most part I um, know we, we were a movie that people were like nah, and, and I even had a in, in, in England and other places in London they got it right away oh, they're so much smarter than us sometimes they think that but I mean they just they understood the <laughs> humor at first i think their marketing campaign thing was brilliant ours over here i don't know if they knew how to really market it at first and it was it was strange because you read the script and you know that it's done by the same exact team that did robocop so you know and and that's all satire and that's all sense of humor you know robocop is so funny the original one but do you think everybody who loved who made robocop a hit really understood that that was sort of tongue-in-cheek Paul Verhoeven did. Ed Newmeyer did. Oh, the people who the, made it the people did. Made it. But the people who made it, I'm sorry, like the, the customers who made it a hit. Do you think they all got that on every level? I don't know if they did, but, yeah. but it's years later and yeah. it's still going. So this is like, we're, we're making, I mean, Robocop was in the 80s and Starship Troopers in the 90s, yeah. Right. So I'm thinking, wow. Uh, and I'm reading the script and everything in that satire. And then when Neil Patrick Harris at the time, who was only Doogie Howser, yeah. you know, comes out in a Nazi uniform, <laughs> you know, you're like... This is definitely satire. You know, like, there's no way to, you know, you're filming. I, I, it was so hard to keep a straight face sometimes. And sometimes I look over at Paul Verhoeven and I go, Paul, and he goes, just do it. This is great. This is great. And I'm like, oh my God. But if I act like this, he's, no, this is great. Just like this. And I had, you know, so sometimes it was hard to maintain the same level of, you know, innocence and, you know, bravado that you have to do as a young, you know, space marine. Um, and then, and then, Knowing the, I mean, it was just, it was, it was the best. It was the best experience. It was one of the most incredible. So it was immediately apparent to you. There was no, because when it first came out, I heard in the ad campaign, I, as I recall, they did kind of pull their punches and just go, watch kids fight bugs. Yeah. Come see Starship Troopers. And so when I, you know, I, I'm like you, I'll just find random stuff in the middle of the night. And that's kind of how I found this movie. And I was like, what? I remember them advertising this. Nobody told me, nobody told me about this. And I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know if they'd said, look, it's the most, um, it's it's this weird, subversive, tongue-in-cheek blockbuster. I don't know that that would have made it necessarily more successful. I don't know if that makes John Q. Public leave his, I don't know how they should have marketed it to make it work, but I know that they did not market it in a way that was faithful to what it actually was, which unfortunately happens. The salespeople don't necessarily care what the artistic people thought. They, well, they thought, how, how can we sell this? And in yeah. London, that they did is they did propaganda warp 
posters. Oh, and man. And they plastered them everywhere. That's what they would do nowadays. Yeah, and that's what they should, you know, and it was like, because it, it's exactly what it is. It's a propaganda war film, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's was satirical. Yeah. And, and, but Paul Verhoeven fought against the Nazis. His, he and his family fought against the Nazis, fought against the oppression and, and the suppression that, that these governments do when they're when they're taking control and just annihilating people. And, and this is what he kind of wanted to poke fun at. So the everybody was sort of cast against type in a way. What yeah, do you mean? You... I was Johnny Rico, Filipino <laughs> Buenos Aires. I don't look like that to you? See, that It's like typecasting. That didn't bother me at all. I'll tell you why. Because I watching it on the East Coast, I understood that Buenos Aires was supposed to be Southern California, which yeah. is America got really wealthy and just decided to take a place that had really nice weather and pretend that they'd always had it. Yeah. And that if it's Southern California in the in the 20th century or the 19th century, that's what it's going to be in the. So the fact that there's I knew there was plenty of like white Mexican kids in Southern California. So why why wouldn't you be this kid from B.A. who's totally white? Who's Johnny Rico? Well, also, when I went to military school, um, a lot of people from South America came to it because their their parents sent them to American military school. And they were they looked like they had been all Nazi Germans <laughs> that had gone because that's what happened. A lot of, that's a lot right. of Germany fled led to South America. Yeah, so I, they say I Hitler think, may have gotten there. So I think the Paul Verhoeven goes on so many different levels. I, he's mm-hmm. a, he's an absolute genius, literally, um, figuratively, I, all of it. He is he he's uh, just a super genius. His mind's always working. He's always writing, always drawing, always doing all this. And so he thinks out so many different things. I think he's extremely creative. Um, so Doogie, I mean, he's he's Doogie at that point. Neil Tra- Patrick Harris, and he's playing against type. I always thought that it was sort of almost a clever in joke, just having Denise Richards, who's known as this like airhead, ditzy, pretty girl, and now she's just super genius and yeah. just go with it. Yeah, I you know, Paul. I I don't know. He 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 has some. He had uh, he had to have uh, the studio wanted him to have two tests. They wanted him to have tests with they wanted him to test for the roles of Carmen, and test for the roles of Rico, and and they wanted I think a, a superstar in both those roles. But he's like I, he had to do a couple of tests, so he mm-hmm. literally did a couple of screen tests, and the couple of screen tests was me testing for Johnny Rico and Denise Richards testing for Carmen, and that was it. Because I think they wanted us to have like two, at least two people testing for Rico. And right, right, right. He could say he did the tryout. He but just he did, tried he, out the people we, he'd already he, cast. He he knew he wanted us, and he didn't do what they because the fine print was a couple of tests. <laughs> so he did literally that. Yeah, and I I saw him speak one time about the movie, and I don't know if this jibes with your memory. He said that just the own the leadership of the studio went through a bunch of changes, and you kind of became the project that was greenlit and then forgotten about. Which is you've given Paul Verhoeven over a hundred million dollars to play with, and nobody's keeping track of what he's doing. Yeah, he he, uh, but also he had absolute control, mm-hmm. which was you know he had final say. They they all wanted a PG thirteen. And they figured that it would have made at least double on its, uh, you know, on its opening weekend. So instead of twenty five million, it would have made fifty million. Oh, of course, huge, of course. Because all the kids at that time were sneaking into the multiplexes, buying tickets to, at what was at Mr. Bean at that time, <laughs> and then the second weekend, Disney re released Little Mermaid three weeks early. And put it in the same theaters, and they made twenty-two million in a re-release of the Little Mermaid, which was like you know I don't know ten years later or whatever. Right? Yeah. And it made twenty-two million, which was the first time that had ever happened in a re-release. They were like, "Oh my god, that was they your put, money!" And and the New York Times did a thing, which was brilliant. They took a thousand, a thirteen and fourteen-year-old boys, 
had them buy tickets to Mr. Bean the first weekend and see if they could sneak into to Starship Troopers. So they did. And all thousand of them were able to do that. And the second weekend, they had another thousand, 13 and 14 year old little boys buy tickets to the Little Mermaid and then see if they could sneak into Starship Troopers. Because now everybody was on to the Mr. Bean thing. Yeah. <laughs> and they all did it. Wow. And, and then they ran this. And they're like, so we lost a lot of money at that time to the multiplexes, which Starship Troopers was in all of the multiplexes at that time. What was your... Um expectation when on the day that you wrap everything and everybody goes home do you feel like we've made a huge hit this it certainly seemed like they were trying to launch what we would now call a universe but it was at least sequel ready it i thought it was going to be huge and when i saw it i thought oh my god this is uh the the special effects the visual effects were uh, surreal and uh you know you're also I'm on the set and I'm watching these sets with you know, 1,300 extras, 30 actors, 30 stunt guys, 250 crew, 150 second unit crew, mm-hmm. all in one day. There's all these ships and all this equipment out there. And I'm looking at that and I'm looking at the team that, that, that directed, Paul Verhoeven directed RoboCop, Ed Neumeyer wrote it. He's right behind camera. Phil Tippett, who won for Jurassic Park, but also did RoboCop. And he won, you know, he won the, you know he's the visual effects guy there. And then John Davison, the producer of the, I'm looking at that team and going, oh my God, I'm number one on my sheet. That means I'm Murphy. So mm-hmm. I thought I was like RoboCop. I was like, oh my God, this is huge for me. So I felt like it was going to be the biggest thing in the world. And it's still something to this day, even though it didn't didn't take off in America. We, we had a guy that um, five years ago on a, a panel goes, hey, Casper, I just want you to know when I when uh, Starship Troopers came out, I was a film critic and I gave Starship Troopers two thumbs down. And now that it is, uh, you know, five, uh, I saw it 10 years later, um, I, I rewatched it and I go, wow, how did I miss this? And now it's my third time all best film ever. What do you think of that? And I go, I think it sucks that you gave it two thumbs down <laughs> when you were a film critic. And now that you're moderating a panel, yeah. you're, you're like, it's the best film ever. Yeah, I'm your like, thumbs got a lot smaller since <laughs> you changed your mind. <laughs> I was like, wow. I go, I go, that really sucks, you know? I was looking at some of the reviews again I was really surprised like Roger Ebert of all people like Ebert you didn't get it it wasn't like I mean the opening sequence of the movie is a shot for shot remake of a Lenny Riefenstahl Nazi propaganda movie how much more do they need to hit you over the head with the fact that this is not just kids fighting bugs yeah, it, it well, there were so many different shots. There's shots that he stole from Zulu and Michael Caine. I mean, you're looking at all these different shots. The whole film was a, uh, you know, Paul Verhoeven is he's just a mastermind genius. I, yeah. I don't know how to say it. He'd be the first one on set and the last one off. Busiest guy I've ever seen. So um, that movie is, uh, I mean, it's coming up on 30 years old now. Are 22, we 22 years old? 20 is it? No, yeah. it's got to be 27. 1997 it came out. Oh, okay, you're right. I'm terrible at math. I graduated from high school in 95. I should be able to add this up. Okay, so we're over 20 years. Are we any closer now to a world in which co-ed showers can happen? I I you know, we're going to have the Space Force real soon. So we are. Oh my goodness, so you're right. Space Force. I just I I Instagram a poster of it cuz some so many people have sent me all these just like different memes of me for the Space Force. But I did one where it was like Uncle Sam, but me as Uncle Sam. Uh-huh. And I put that up. And it's just one of the funniest things. And my son's like, Dad, I saw that one too. And it's just so funny. And I don't, I don't know. Are we closer? Yes, I think so. Do you? 
I mean, I thought we were getting real close for a second, and then about 18 months ago, it seems like we got really far away all over again. Yeah, we closed down a lot of things. It's yeah. interesting. I don't know. But Space Force, you know, what happens in space stays in space. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, the rules have to change a yeah. little bit. These are yeah. these are all new frontiers that were uh, – and I understand that you all made uh, Verhoeven get nude for shooting your nude. Well, we didn't make him get nude. He, he came out and goes, what's the matter with you guys? And Dina Meyer at the time mm-hmm. said um, – uh, uh, Paul, you know, if it's no big deal, why don't you do it? And Paul dropped it because he's not, and he just dropped it. He goes okay, and then Yost did it, and I'm like, oh, and Dina, and she goes, I didn't know he would do it, and we're like, ah, oh. like so for the rest of my mind, I have you know for the rest of my life, I'm gonna have that image, you know, burned and like I didn't, and he pulled it back up, and and we went and shot the scene. It wasn't like he shot it naked. Oh, I see. Okay, that's that's a little bit less repellent than what I had. No, it was pretty repellent. <laughs> Let me just tell you, I was there, and and Gina's like, I had no idea he would do it. I was just trying to make a joke. I go, not not funny, yeah. not not funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so what's next for you? Well, I got to play Jimmy Doolittle in a film. Uh, it called. Uh, you know, it's either going to be called Doolittle's Heroes or um, uh, uh, Sunset River Sunset, and it is uh, about Jimmy Doolittle, who was the most decorated pilot we had in World War One, and then after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, he re-signed up at forty six, and he came up with the plan of taking the. B-25 bombers off the aircraft carriers and we bombed Japan, which everybody thought you couldn't do at the time. Mm-hmm. And it changed the tide of the war. We we were able to win midway because they pulled back some troops and planes and ships to protect the mainland. And it was a suicide mission, but he got these 16 planes, 80 pilots and crew to take off what they thought was a suicide mission. He kept telling you guys don't have to, there's no shame, these young pilots. Uh, and they didn't want him to go because he was the most decorated pilot, but he convinced them to make him go, and they went over there, and 64 of the 80 made it back alive, even though they, they had to crash in China, and then uh, the Chinese helped us get out. It was the only time we worked together with China. To, How do I not know this story? It's, it's amazing. Spencer Tracy played him in 30 Seconds Over Tokyo with oh, Robert okay. Mitchum. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And um, Alec Baldwin played him in Pearl Harbor, but that was small parts. This mm-hmm. is his story, and I got to play Jim, Jimmy Doolittle. And it's, um, this, I'm, well, this is perfect for you on multiple yeah. levels. First of all, it's it, it just there are just so few people in Hollywood who can play military roles convincingly because the kind of people who it's usually just a bunch of uh, Nancy boys that want to be in, in movies. They're yeah. just you know it's just not a military type, and you have the the background. And then with what you were saying about loving classic Hollywood, this is like this, this is a classic Hollywood story. And this is the role of a lifetime for me. I mean, I, Johnny Rico, of course, was will always be that for me. But yeah. this is a, it's an iconic role. It's actually, I mean, th- th- there's so much with this story that's that surreal. He, uh, he then, you know, they did not want him to go, but he had to trick them. He tricked them because he thought, these young men that are, are volunteering to go, yeah. they all know it's a suicide mission, and they don't stand a chance unless somebody with my experience can go. And there's only one per- person with my experience, and that's me. So he literally tricked them, and they, they it's unbelievable. And they put that in the film. We, we did the how he did it. It's brilliant. When people go, they're like, ah, there's no way. But he really did trick them this way. He was, um, and he believed in these men so much. And they even, uh, the Japanese... Uh, a fishing boat spotted the aircraft carrier, the Hornet, coming like a day before they were supposed to take off, and they still thought they didn't have enough fuel. And they bombed this, the, the, even though they called into Japan and said, hey, there's an aircraft carrier coming towards us. They bombed it. The Japanese thought it was a fake fake news. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we took off anyhow with no, no uh, guns on the planes, no escort. 
a day early when they already thought they had not enough fuel and they still did this mission. These men were the, they're the bravest generation, but these are the bravest of the brave generation to me, I think. I mean, the whole generation is the bravest. I mean, I, anybody that goes to war in, in any era of our thing, I think they give us the, they afford us the responsibility and the ability to, to do the things that we love to do. And I'm so grateful for it. So for me to be able to play this man was great. And, and, that, and that's filmed. That's filmed. We're, we're all done. We might have to do a couple pickup shots, but mm-hmm. we filmed in China and I filmed here. Filmed, filmed on the in whole, China? Yeah, I did. I filmed three weeks in China. So about, is this like a Chinese co-production kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, it is. Oh, that's, Chin- where, that's where it's at. So you can release this in China. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a huge release in China. It's going to be a huge, huge. They're they're like because uh, we were allies with them. It's the only time we were allies with them. But it was a uh, it was uh, a brief thing because three years later we uh, became uh, we signed partnership with Japan or uh, they became our allies and then and the Chinese were like what? Uh-huh. <laughs> what about the the thing? Yeah. Hello. <laughs> well, that's really cool. That's really exciting. I'm sorry. Did you say when does that come out? Do you I, know? I don't know. End of this year or beginning of next year or something. You know, okay. Well, they're going to be editing. They're editing it this summer. I'm I'm excited for you that the that you know you're just getting to the role of a lifetime now. Yeah, as old as I am, it's a good, it's a good thing. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm 49. I was 48 and 49 when I filmed this. So. I filmed it last year and this year, so it's it's a it's a cool role. And he was forty six, forty seven when he did perfect. This. So yeah, perfect. All right. And in the meantime, Darkness Reigns is a video on demand on July tenth. Yes. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to finally get to meet you, Casper Van Dien. You too. Yeah, and I had a blast with that one. So. Thank you. We are back on The Tully Show. Joining me now, a comedian on the move. Last week, she appeared on Jimmy Fallon. This week, she makes her Netflix debut on the new stand-up showcase series, The Comedy Lineup. If you're hearing this episode two weeks from now, you're probably already surprised at one point she was willing to do this show. (laughs) Welcome back, Taylor Tomlinson. Thank you so much for having me back. You have had an exciting week or so. Yes, it's been a good week. It's been one of the good ones. I I know I know that was not your late night uh, TV debut. No, I did Conan back in September. Wow. Yeah, so this is only my second time doing late night, but it was, was my first time tonight show for sure, yeah. I was nervous for you. Yeah. <laughs> I did not I couldn't I did not watch the Heidi Klum interview. I'm sure she was the hair I'm not sure about, but I'm sure she was fabulous. She was great, yeah. She was dressed like a disco ball. She looked out, she was just the sparkliest jumpsuit I've ever seen. She's a gamer. She's oh yeah. She was doing it. And uh but I actually get nervous for you and for anybody that I know doing that. How nervous were you doing that? You know, I was nervous, but not anywhere near as nervous as I was doing Conan. Yeah. Just because I I, I think it was good that I did it uh, somewhat soon after Conan because I, I felt like I I knew what to expect doing late night and also I just ran this set so many times just countless times that by the time we got there I was like I couldn't forget this set if I wanted to mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I was really trying to enjoy it I really I was so nervous for the Netflix tape and we taped the Netflix 15 uh, back in February and I was so nervous for it and I I, to the point where it wasn't even enjoyable and so for the tonight show I just really wanted to have fun so I I made a conscious effort to not get so uh just filled to the brim with dread (laughs) that it ruined the experience and I actually I I really really had a great time and uh and felt prepared and and they were 
just the best audience ever. So yeah, you look casual. Thank you. And I think, I mean, I don't know how many people, and this is not what's going to happen to you. I'm not, this, this metaphor is oh, no. going to break down very, very quickly. <laughs> but I've encountered some people, I've been in radio for a while, who have like a little burst. Musicians is really who mm-hmm. I'm thinking of. And they're like, everybody like the singer, fuck the bass player's girlfriend. And they actually, for mm-hmm. like the three months of their life that this whole shitty enterprise actually miraculously works out, they're not having fun at mm-hmm. all. And it's like, you're going to be... When you're playing at some outdoor festival at two o'clock in the afternoon and you're lucky to be getting 400 bucks six years from now, you're going to be wishing <laughs> you at least enjoyed the success yeah. when it happened. So I'm, I'm right. happy when people enjoy success. Right, exactly. And even if you continue to be successful, what's the point if you're just miserable the entire time? Yeah. So, yeah, what are we doing if right. you're not going to have fun doing stand-up? That's kind of how I tried to think of it is like, this is just a set in front of a really great crowd. Mm-hmm. And I just happen to be wearing a lot more makeup than I'm used to. You know, just just have fun. This is your favorite thing to do. You know, just act like it. Refresh my memory about your accent. Where are you from again? I'm from here. Everyone thinks I have an accent. I've, I've, I'm from California, born and raised. I don't know. From, like the Wisconsin part of That's what California? everybody thinks. Everybody says, are you from the Midwest? I've gotten Chicago. Yeah. Uh, it's approachable. Is it approachable? Great. Then I'm good with it. I don't know why... I, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know. Do people, where you're from, those see? Uh, I grew up in like Modesto, uh, Escalon until I was like 10. Uh-huh. And then I was in uh, like Temecula, Riverside County. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's like not, a, that, that's not no. a Temecula. That's like Moto country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just, yeah, I don't know what it is. Well, I, yeah, I. I dig it. I Again, I, I love people from the Midwest. And so I find you very likable. Oh, great. Which is. Which works out because I don't tend to like people from Temecula. Really? <laughs> Me neither. I don't like myself a lot of the time. And it's because I'm from Temecula. <laughs> so how old are you? are in your mid to late 20s 24. Now? Oh my goodness. You're still not even... Wow. You're still... Based on your stand-up, and I know it's all a joke, but everything is rooted in reality. It doesn't seem like you are... The 20s are totally working for you. Oh no. It's completely rooted in reality. Uh-huh. I'm so frustrated with being in my 20s. Uh, I'm just tired of being... In progress. And it probably, it's very similar to enjoying the the successful moments in your career. You should probably, it is what, true what they say, you should enjoy your 20s and your youth. And, yeah. and you'll get older and you'll look back and you'll wish you'd appreciate it. But I, I have never looked back at, you know, high school or college and thought like, oh man, I should have appreciated that more. I'm, I'm so eager to not be... Uh, what I feel like, I just feel like that your twenties are such a frustrating time where you just don't feel fully fleshed out and you're, you're trying to kind of color in all the white space of your personality yeah, and, and trying not to suck and also making mistakes and trying not to make mistakes. But then people are telling you, this is the time you should make mistakes and no, take risks. No, 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 no. I disagree. My, my, you disagree? My, you, we can see our son from here. I brought him to work today. No, I, I constantly, you don't have to do that. It's, it's, are, do you like children? I do like children. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. I feel like uh, when we, when my son and I rode up in the elevator this morning, there was a woman who I'm just going to go out on a limb and say is not a kid person, which is which is great, which is totally yeah. cool. If you're not into it, you got an angle. You yeah. definitely got an angle. <laughs> but I feel like certain people, particularly women, feel like a societal pressure to just do like the tiniest little aw. And it's like if you don't mm. want to, if you don't feel that way, 
He's a monster. Like, you know, <laughs> you, like, look, you could argue either way, and I'm good with it. I used to tell, before I had children, I had friends who didn't know if they wanted to have children, and I'd be like, look, dude, you do it, and then you just thank yourself for it. And now I'm like six years in, I'm like, if you don't, if you think you don't <laughs> want a kid, there's a pretty good chance you don't want a kid, because wow. I was really sure I wanted a kid, and I'm like, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, this was the right wow. this was the right move. That's so interesting. So you're uh you're right about your 20s. They do kind of stink. And mm-hmm. I mean, if I can just dissect you knowing little to almost nothing about you, mm-hmm. you want to be you are like a perfectionist kind of person. Mm-hmm. So being unfinished is problematic for you. It's easy to see how it's romanticized. The, the thing about the 20s is anything is possible. Mm-hmm. You know, you, well, you actually s- still might accomplish amazing things, but even people who are never going to accomplish anything can still believe I could just turn this around. Once, once you're like 40, there, you know, it's like a lottery ticket that, that everything's going to turn around for you. Yes. But the twenties are, you just remember the good bits. I kind of feel like it's, you know, how like, um, you know, 30s, the new 20 and 50s, the new 30 and whatever. It's almost like 20s, just the new high school. It is. It is the new high school. And it's not even so much my 20s. I'm super happy. I My life is great right now. I'm, I'm not, you know, sitting here going like, oh, someday it's going to be better. I'm, I'm very happy with how everything's going. It's just being this age that's hard for me. It's the perfectionist in me and the the part of me that's very uncomfortable with anxiety and uncertainty cuz your 20s are just 10 years of what how is this going to shake out you know like, well now what makes you think that that changes oh good point i mean yeah you didn't feel more stable or sure of who you were or what you wanted and what you're going to do somebody said something um like an adult party I happened to be at when I was a teenager that stuck with me and it's really really true here's the only difference your 20s are about trying to change who you are and your Mm -hmm. 30s are about realizing the things about your life that you about yourself Mm -hmm. that you can't change and you won't change Mm -hmm. and starting to just embrace workarounds Mm -hmm. like my 20s for me were if I go to the bar and I bring eight pennies in my back pocket and throw one on the ground every time I order a beer, when I'm out of pennies, I got to go home and I can't drink too much tonight. Uh-huh. And somehow the eight penny thing never quite worked out the way. <laughs> and your 30s are about saying, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> no one should have that many pennies. Uh, if you have that many pennies, you have a problem. You could buy you something with a, a penny when, when I was in my 30s. <laughs> Beers were only a penny? Oh, I so, completely <laughs> misunderstand the story. Yeah, they threw in this uh, root beer flavored candy. It was terrific. <laughs> but no, that's no, a it, good point. It doesn't. Nothing. No, of course nothing ever changes. I know. And everybody says that, like, oh, you never figured out. Nobody knows what they're doing. And everybody's just pretending to know. But then I've also talked to a lot of people who, who talk about being in their 30s or even their 40s, like, with relief. Like, it's so nice to feel like I finally know who I am and not be trying... To be like, like you said, trying to change yourself, trying to be some I- idealistic version of yourself that maybe will never exist, and or, still trying on personalities to an extent. Still trying on personalities, still, still taking chances and going places you don't want to go. My, my thing is like I've just never enjoyed the romantic, like figuring yourself. out. I just want to know. I feel like from a pretty young age, I've, I've had a pretty good idea of of who I am, and. 
even that has has changed a lot. But at at my core, there are certain things that I think I thought when I get older, I'll be you know more extroverted or something. It's like eh, that never happened. You know, like there are just certain things about yourself that that are just who you are. And it's like you said, finding those workarounds. And that's I feel like your my twenties have been trying to find workarounds. Yeah. And and we can swear, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just I I don't I don't connect to the the sort of like romantic we're all fuck ups thing like of being in your twenties. You know, like I feel like every TV show I see about people my age is just is just this manic pixie fuck up dream that you're watching unfold. And it's like this isn't fun to watch. I want to watch someone try. Yeah. I want to watch someone try to not suck instead of just going, I'm 24. This is my time to suck. I'm going to do dangerous things. It's like, why don't we all try to be people? Yeah. Why don't we actually try to pick a path and stick to it? Yeah. I was kind of under the impression, you can't talk about generations in broad terms, and yet we all love to do it, mm-hmm. that your generation was a little bit more on the ball than mine. Because I'm sort of like- I think we might be, yeah. Yeah. Mine was like huffing on the fumes of the 90s, which is the first time where everybody could be like- Oh wait, you still like getting high and watching Scooby Doo? I still like that too. <laughs> I used to try to hide that part of me because society shunned that. But if we've got numbers, then fuck everybody. We're just gonna, you know, literally all of our favorite bands put their brains together and re-recorded the theme songs of Hanna Barbera hits, <laughs> and that was a successful CD when I yeah. was a, a teenager. And I kind of thought that you all were the ones who were because every generation has to rebel against the preceding one right. that was saying. Yeah, I mean, I see the fun in that, but there is more to life than dank buds. You know what I think, my gener- and I, I shouldn't speak for my entire generation, like I know, because I no, don't feel like I'm late. good at. You're the voice I'm doing of your generation, it. It's Taylor. too late. I'm doing it. Uh, Self appointed. <laughs> I think my generation is more like, like everyone's a- was in ASB. You know, like everybody got really good grades. What's ASB? Do you remember uh, Associated Student Body? Uh, it's like it. It was like I wasn't much of a joiner. It was like uh, okay. Well, it was like student government in high school, but it was usually like popular kids, and you know, they'd run yearbook and stuff like like kids on yearbook or something. Like all the the popular, cool, athletic kids who got good grades and took AP classes, but also partied. Like I went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo for my first uh, quarter uh, of college. And that's how that felt. It just felt like people who had figured out how to get A's and also party. And it's almost like my generation is trying to do everything. They're trying to be like on paper really successful, but they're also like, I have to have these experiences because that's what being this age is about. I see. You know what I mean? Got to party hard and work hard and party harder. Yeah. So, yeah. They're trying to have yeah, their cake and the eat boxes. it too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, I'm trying to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's no. The there's nothing idea. wrong with that. I'm just not good at it. It's funny that you think that you're insufficiently extroverted. If if there is such a thing, considering that not only are you a comic, and mm-hmm. I think we all are aware, aware that there's some shy comics, but that you became a comic in your teens, that mm-hmm. really doesn't seem like an. Like, are you in therapy? Did your therapist ever tell you that? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, I was horrified. I started going to therapy. Uh, again recently and then i went in high school around the same time that i started doing Uh stand-up so and i felt like stand-up helped just as much if not more than therapy but i was for the first few years that i was doing stand-up i was terrified 
to go on stage. Like I like physically ill before shows for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, it would. Yeah, I mean, that's where, it would that's where I'm living. Is that where you yeah, are right yeah, yeah. now? And it's then horrible. A, and then I get like a 36 hour headache afterward. <laughs> really? Yeah. You don't enjoy it afterward. You're not like, oh, that was awesome. No, I do. I'm happy. I just have a headache that I know is clearly the result of the accumulated really? stress. Yeah. Oh wow. How often are you doing it? Uh, well, usually about once a week. So I'm I'm usually like nervous yeah. for four and recovering for two, and then silly enough to sign up for another show. Right. Yeah. And see, the only way I got over that was going up every single night, yeah. multiple times a night. Right. Because it was like I don't have time. No, your body is like physically yeah. not even capable of getting like people who like lived in the Blitzkrieg during World War II. Like you just can't get that freaked out about the Luftwaffe <laughs> exactly. every single day. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh and now I'm in this this different stage of my career where I'm like, "Oh, I have to take time off because if I don't, I won't have anything to talk about. I'll be totally burnt out." Mm-hmm. And uh and it's not, you know, it wasn't like when I was starting where I would do, you know, five to 15 minutes it's like now i do a whole weekend and you're doing you know hours and so yeah you can take monday and tuesday off and you're gonna be fine but it's it's what i love about stand-up is it's always adjusting and it's always changing what as far as your process and what you need to do depending on what level you're at or how far you are into it um and i guess that that's kind of similar to how your 20s are it's just always kind of changing how you're approaching life and and what's right for you and i was talking to someone about this the other day about how i feel like this time in my life i'm figuring out what i want and once i'm figuring out what i want i'm figuring out if what i need is the same as what i want yeah because i don't think they're always the same thing well and burnout is a super real thing super real i i i can say now that i experienced it and uh and now i have to kind of like it's like acid reflux first i got it and now i have to manage it and i can see the warning signs coming but no i went to legitimate doctors and then um when they refused to uh indulge me i ended up at like witch doctors and you know i ended up on like a a, a green drink cleanse and, and all i really needed to do was to stop working. to stop exactly you're drinking instead you're drinking green juice at work yeah i just finished one <laughs> and, and so now you've I'm made fine. no progress all right no 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 now i just keep the now i've learned to at least try to keep the wolves at bay but it's absolutely yeah. a real thing to become super counterproductive and then it becomes this vicious cycle of i'm not being very productive so i need to work harder and mm-hmm. so then it's almost like uh, the old, well, you don't remember the anti-drug ad, but it's like the anti-drug ad, but without all the fun of doing drugs. <laughs> so I can work more, so I can make more money, so I can do more drugs. Yeah. Anyway. So when you start feeling it come on, yeah. do you just drop everything? What do you do? No, no, I can't. I just give myself like a night off. Mm-hmm. That's really the best that I can do is I just say whatever kind of needs to happen can't happen. And once my kid goes to bed and the house quiets down and I finish making my green drink for tomorrow, which is like literally a part of my routine yeah. at, at 9 p.m. It just I need to stop for the night, mm-hmm. and that's and I also just like honestly I I, I drink less um, because I don't need to add unnecessary stresses to the whole ecosystem. Yes, you know, uh, dating in your 20s sounds horrible. Are you? How much are you joking about? Guys won't wear condoms. Uh, see what that that is. I've had very. I'll be honest. I've dated nice guys. 
So I've had. And why very, would you not look? I mean, look at you. I know, How would you look end at up me. With, yeah. I, there, there's no way. There's I. I did a joke about it in the Netflix book where I said like, men don't even picture me naked. They just picture me like helping their mom on Easter because nobody, nobody like tries to hook up with me. Like people only try to date me seriously because yeah, my you, face is so round. You no, know, you're the Marion kind. That's the I'm least, wholesome. That's the least threatening black leather jacket I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm trying to look tougher. <laughs> this isn't working. Uh, yeah, no, but I've I've heard so many horror stories from from friends of mine, um, and there's really there was really only like one guy that I've ever was gave me any issue with that, and it wasn't even that bad. But the 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 stories I hear from girlfriends of mine who are doing like the dating apps and like just hooking up and more casual with with things, it's it's really it's exhausting. I I was on a dating app for about a week after my last breakup. And I was like, this is, this is another job. Mm -hmm. This is a full-time job. Seems like. Yeah. That you have to wake up in the morning and respond. You have a hundred messages from people who don't care. They're just, it's a numbers game. Like they're just, Hey, you know, they don't care about you. Casting a wide net. Casting a wide net. Some of them I'm sure legitimately respond, but other people are just casting a wide net and you can't tell from the the pickup line. Right. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, the it's and I feel like because my generation is trying to do everything, we're so busy, and so a lot of people are are just trying to casually date and just trying to get to know people because they feel like that's what they're supposed to do. And I'm I'm not really like that. I I only I've tried to do the thing where I'm like I'm just gonna date casually, and it always just turns into me d- dating somebody very seriously for a long time. Oh yeah, it's how do you, you know? how do you make God laugh? Make a plan. Yeah, it's exactly. rid- it's ridiculous. No, I met my wife on fucking Craigslist and yeah. you know, 3 months later we were engaged. That's not even a joke. It's yeah. just the way that goes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's can't... just the way that goes. I know? love people who are like, yeah, I'm just not I'm not going to do a relationship right now. I've I've never met such a you see them in movies all the time but i've never mm-hmm. actually met the cold-hearted son of the son of a bitch uh and if i can be sexist particularly women who are like about two years i can get into a serious relationship yeah. i'm just gonna have fun right now mm-hmm. it's like you don't control the partners who come into your life yeah i feel like if you the most you can do is say i'm not gonna date at all like i'm not gonna but you that I feel you can like do kind that of. you can do kind of but it's i think it's hard to say i'm gonna date but i'm not gonna fall in love with anybody it's like well if you're already if you're going around practicing love, <laughs> yeah. you might actually fall into it with yeah. somebody. But there if is, you just go, I'm celibate, then right. that might work for you. Yeah, no. There is a surprising correlation between sex and love when it comes down Isn't to it. Isn't that weird? I know. I know. And we've been trying our damnedest, Taylor. We have been trying so hard to separate those two. Just like, nah, with sex and love, oil and water. But it, it kind of feel they feel very similar. What is this, the 1800s? <laughs> I know. So, But really, like, no... Because I'm not going to say I've never had unprotected sex, but it was always something that I, it was never premeditated, and it was much like the the eight. It was usually after the eight pennies. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't drink, so I'm I never have that issue. I'm never counting the pennies in my pocket going. I it's just it, that's a that's an insane thing to do until they work out. Um, because uh, pregnancy is a real thing. I can I can vouch for so that. You have look, he's right there, and you don't. He's he's watching. Us. He's he's watching you, <laughs> and you don't. He's always... very cute. <laughs> Thank you. He's being a little children of the corny at the moment. <laughs> I actually gave him the the video game thing, which you'll have to believe. I never we never let him have screen time. But yeah. I decided I had to bend the rules for this, and now he's. Oh, just... you're such a parent. We never let him have screen time, and now he's just and now he's just staring at us. But uh, but yeah, pregnancy can really happen, oh, much like love, even when you're not planning for it. I'm living proof mm-hmm. of that. So 
I don't really have a question. I just can't believe that guys actually want to have unprotected sex. That's what I can't believe too. But it's like people pull out and they do, they do. They're like, "Well, you're on the pill," and it's like, "Yeah, but aren't you terrified?" Like, isn't Rami Youssef, who's a very funny comic, has a funny joke about how he's like. He's a guy in his twenties. He's like, I love using condoms. Like, it's I feel so much safer. That's way better sex. And I'm like, yeah, it's nobody has to worry about it. Why would you go the other way and just be the whole time going like, well, I hope I'm not shackled to you forever. <laughs> like, because wouldn't that change? I feel like it changes the relationship too. Where it, it's like if you've posting. If you, yeah, if you if you if you're having a child. Oh, well, no, if before that, but yeah, I mean that probably changes it a bit. Also, uh, I assume I'm guessing. But <laughs> now nah, we are still footloose and fancy We're free. Still footloose and fancy free. I, we but said, just, this baby's not going to make us miss a stride. <laughs> but even having unprotected sex, I feel like, especially if you're the girl, there's part of you that's like, "Well, okay, I did this. I risked a baby so you could feel a tiny bit better." No, nah, it's actually a lot better. Oh, okay, that's the, well, that's the thing. It's, it's whatever. It's quite a bit better. Okay, well, I take back everything I said about condoms. Forget it. Yeah, let's. <laughs> uh, we got to go. Thank you so much for uh, for making the trip. Of course, thanks for having me. Uh, Taylor Tomlinson, watch her set from Jimmy Fallon on YouTube. See her in the comedy lineup on Netflix. Congratulations on that. Listen to the Self Helpless podcast with Kelsey Cook and Delaney Fisher, and follow her at Taylor Tomlinson on Twitter at T Tom Comedy on Instagram. I hope people had a pen to write all that down. That's I all know, that information. Right? Wow. Thanks. See you next time. Thanks.